led us really well this morning, and we just want to say thank you for that. All righty, well, the cat's away. And uh, you know what the rules are, though. When the cat's away, everybody agrees to buy a CD of the sermon. All right, everybody. In fact, half price today. Because I just want Pastor Mark to come back and, uh, you know, go into his office and see the statistics and then for him to go, wow. And then we all just go. <laughs> Last night I was coming in here and uh, got here about 5.30 for the 6 o'clock service. There was someone driving through the parking lot and they were, uh, they had come up next to me and rolled down the window and they said, is the service at 5.30? I said, no, it's, uh, it's at 6 o'clock. And uh, they said, well, uh, oh, we thought it was at 5.30. I said, well, the preacher's really good tonight. And they said, yeah, we thought it was 5.30. <laughs> so I'm not sure what you expected today, but maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll give you something worthwhile that can encourage you in your race. I mean, that's the theme we've been talking about. If you haven't caught it so far already, it's about running and about running the race, which is a, a very common biblical theme, uh, imagining the, the walk of faith really being a run where we aspire and move on toward the things of God till we see him face to face. And, and one of the elements that fits into that running the race is, is each other um, who encourage one another to go on. And uh, in a sense, the Bible teaches that not only do we do that corporately, but historically we have examples of people who inspire us toward faith and perseverance and finishing well. Novelist Ernest Hemingway put it this way, however, looking more at a, a crass way of, of viewing life as he, uh, as he was sizing up humanity and sizing up the heroic. Here's what Ernest Hemingway said. He said, as we get older... It is harder to have heroes, but it is sort of necessary. <laughs> I like both sides of that. He says, as you get older, it's harder to have heroes. It's really true. And if, if, as you go on in life, there are times when you just realize, you know, you got to be really careful picking out your heroes because we're, we're all so frail. And the people we place our faith in and trust in, I mean, they can disappoint. And, and the, the, the heroic notions of life sometimes seems to fade into frizzle, and yet... Hemingway also said, but it is sort of necessary. We need people. We need each other. We need historical examples of people who call us on to inspire us uh, toward finishing well. In fact, the Bible itself in Hebrews chapter 13 says the very same thing. It says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. It's not saying every leader that we follow is uh, bulletproof or perfect, but it says in general we're to remember our leaders, imitate their way of faith. Well, I wonder where you are at in your journey right now. I think this weekend is a great weekend to sort of think about re-upping. And as a matter of fact, uh, a little bit later, the, really the pinnacle of our service is when we share the Lord's Supper. And I feel like what I'm doing now is giving us prelude to that because when we share the Lord's Supper, it's really kind of a re-up time. And, uh, and, and, and this fall, in fact, may be very different for every one of us here. This may be a fall when... Um, we get serious about some things we haven't been serious about. Maybe a fall when we let go of some things we ought to be 
letting go of there could be a whole lot of things in store for us. But let's talk just a moment about heroes. When I think of heroes, I think of a little old lady who held me in the grip of her bony little hands one day when I was living in Central Africa. During my senior year of college, I decided that I was not going to go on to, uh, to anything significant, I suppose, at that time. I wasn't ready for graduate school. There were other things I was thinking about, and I thought, well, I might as well do something a little unusual, a little out of the box, and I uh, spent almost a year in Central Africa. Zaire was the name of the country at that time. It's now called the Democratic Republic of Congo, unless it changed one more time overnight. And I was there serving at a mission hospital doing electrical work and things like that. Well, on, on occasion, I would have other opportunity to do some things while I was there. Now, I had gone to Africa, as I said, because, well, I think there were three reasons. One was uh, I was tired of academia. I was not ready for a graduate school. Number two, I thought maybe missionary life would be my, part of my future. Number three, I had a problem with a girlfriend. And it was like, what better way to take care of that, right, than to go to the dark continent and just kind of get away. Coming up on 25 years. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, I'm doing my stuff in Africa, and I'm kind of enjoying that whole thing, and there were ups and downs and so on, but then one day, my life was rocked because I was at the, uh, the mission director's home in Bunia, Zaire, and uh, that wouldn't mean anything to you other than the fact that I was at the mission director's home and uh, was there for about a week doing some work. And while I was there for breakfast one morning, the crackling of the radio caught our attention. It wasn't the AM or FM radio. It was the communications radio that we would use with our missionaries on the field. And we got notice that this little old lady, her name was Zola, she's a white-haired, bony little lady who didn't know what it meant to retire, she was over in neighboring Uganda where she was leading a Bible school. She was training young men to become pastors. And um, this Zola, um, we got word, was in trouble and she needed rescue. So our mission director uh, decided to forego all the governmental regulations you need to do and sent one of our planes over to pick her up. And it was at 5 o'clock about in the afternoon when she finally arrived at the home where I was staying. And we were standing there the first time I met her on uh, the, the, the front porch there and learned about her day, and she described what had happened. She had been woken before dawn as these insurgents had busted down the door of her little mud hut, came in with their rifles, forced her out into the open courtyard where she saw her eight Bible school students, the ones she was pouring her life into, each take a bullet to the head and drop dead. You know, I was there in Africa just, what, you know, spending time, and then all of a sudden you get slammed with some of these realities, the harshness of life and faith and the whole business. And, and I'm standing there on the porch hearing this story, is this, this firm little lady, and at that time she grabbed my hands and she looked up into my eyes and she said some heroic words that I've never forgotten. To this day, I... I remember, the, I remember that as if it were yesterday, and I'm going to tell you those words in, in just a moment. But for the time being, as we think about finishing the race well, aspiring toward a higher calling, I'm going to ask that you would join with me in a biblical journey.
We're going to look at a common text of Scripture. If you have your Bibles here, I would invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be looking toward the end, right around verse 32. If you don't have your Bible here, we've got them all over the place. And on page 852, you will see Hebrews chapter 11, written by some guy whose name was not Hebrews. And for all we know, it could have been a woman. There's a lot of speculation on who this person might have been, but we don't really know who the author was. We only know that the author was writing to Jewish Christians, believers who, uh, who uh, were of Jewish uh, heritage and now understanding that the Messiah had come in the person of Jesus. And this author is now ramping up. He is in chapter 11, and I'm going to say he, not knowing if it was a man or a woman, but the author was was writing what Bible people call the Hall of Faith or the Hall of Fame of Faith. Chapter 11 is full of people of faith. You read these stories, and they're one after the next, inspiring stories of people who did some incredible things. And he's sort of wrapping it up, and in chapter 11, verse 32, he wants to get to the point, and he says the following, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon and so on. I'm going to read that in a moment. But you know what a, you know what a pastor means when he says, now in conclusion, he means absolutely nothing. <laughs> so right here, one who says, and what more shall I say, this sense that he's running out of paper, running out of thoughts, it's really not the fact, but he is going to condense what he's saying, and he's going to give a few more examples, six more examples of faith. He says, I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle, routed foreign armies, women received back their dead, raised to life again, others were tortured, refused to be released, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while Still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Hardly a, uh, a stellar infomercial calling people to a life of faith. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's... The, the brochure just is missing something because it describes the torturous life that some people of faith have lived. I mean, people have accomplished great things, and many of these are listed. I, I love statements like, whose weakness was turned to strength, which is, is, is almost a mantra for the way that God works in our lives and our weakness, and later on says the world was not worthy of them. But... But the, the author here is at least going to give six more examples about finishing the race and being faith. So the author picks six choices, which I don't know if I would have chosen. Because every one of these six accomplished some incredible things with insurmountable odds, but each one of them also had some pretty glaring weaknesses. I mean, uh, what does it say? Well, I don't have time to talk about Gideon. You know anything about Gideon? Here is a guy who stuttered so much in his faith that to a point of disbelief, he put God on the spot with his business about fleeces. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, 
That's fine. But if you know what I'm talking about, it was not an act of faith for him to play this game with God whose patience had pretty much worn thin. So I don't know if he would fit in my hall of faith. Then you've got uh, Samson. Samson, that big husky uh, judge who was supposed to redeem Israel from the onslaught of the Philistines, just toyed with his life. Remember a couple of years back, some of you would remember that I did a series here, we call it Bad Boys of the Bible. All right, And uh, we talked about Samson. And we talked about he just monkeyed around with his life. And then at the end, amidst his blindness and his growing faith again, he was able to take out the Philistines with one fell swoop. And remember, one of the things we said then is that it's not too late to start becoming the person you could have been. So for those of you who are crying in your beer and you're saying you're a fraud or you're a phony or you don't have a future, I'm just telling you, Samson despite all of his despicableness, was an example that it's not too late to start becoming the person you could have been. And then another one who's listed, we did this in the Bad Boys series, Jephthah. Now here is a guy who was a mighty warrior, had all kinds of dysfunctional issues in his life, and one of the things he did in order to garner victory, he pledged to God that when, if I will win the battle, when I come home, I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house, probably hoping for a chicken or maybe a goat. But what comes out is his daughter, and he says, you've made my life miserable. She should have said, you're a nutcase. (laughs) But instead she says, okay. So she is sacrificed by her father. This guy is in the Bible, is an example of faith. When we taught that message, I remember we said that zeal for God without a knowledge of God is a pretty dangerous combination. And uh, you run into all kinds of people, even in our Christian subculture, very zealous for God, but they don't have a clue on, on, on who God is in the depths, and that compels us to want to know God more deeply. And then there's David with his stuff, a, a, a man who didn't stutter so much in his faith, but morally he made some very bad choices, and uh, not only um, was, was engaged in adultery, but also then was a... Uh, 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 compliant to uh, to an act really of murder that had occurred, and Samuel they would say he he, he was a, a judge who who led well maybe left some unfinished business at home. Um, there's all kinds of ways that we can look at this, but here's the thing. Remember Ernest Hemingway says it's harder to get your heroes because well as time goes on you sort of see what people are made. The Bible is full of heroes who were sort of messed up in some way, and I mean seriously messed up. But one of the great theologians of the Middle Ages, his name was John Calvin, reflecting just on how God administers life. And here's John Calvin's high school graduation picture. <laughs> here's what he said. He said, in every saint there is always to be found something reprehensible. See, you old-timers, you know that's true. Because you walked along long enough where you've seen everybody's got their stuff, Right? And every saint, that's a Christ follower, person of faith, there is always to be found something reprehensible. Nevertheless, although faith may be imperfect and incomplete, it does not cease to be approved by God. You know what? That's why we worship. That's why we sing songs to inspire because it somehow turns a little emotional crank in us, a little switch that reminds us, oh, wow, yeah, I'm messed up, but you know what? I'm still a person of faith. And, and God does not, that does not ignore me in that. So this author of Hebrews picks out some pretty, 
weird examples, but also some pretty regular examples, and calls us on and tells all those things about them. There's one other point that I I picked out in this that I just wanted to touch on, and that's the last verse we're flashing up there right now in verse 35. It talks about women receiving back their dead raised to life again. And then the hinge turns in this little teaching because now he's going to talk about rotten things that happen in the life of faith. And uses a really powerful word. He says, others were tortured and refused to be released. I don't imagine anyone here has been tortured. I suppose it's possible. I'm sure people have been abused here. I mean... No doubt about that. But this word torture sort of jumps out at me because he would have been writing uh, in the Greek language, and you know what the Greek letters all look like, you know, the alpha, the beta, the gamma. And, and what we do then to transliterate them, we put them into English words or English letters. And this word that is there for tortured, well, let's say it together, everybody. I don't even know if I can say it. I'll bet you Pastor Mark can't say it. It says, itimpanisthesen. And when I see these words that are transliterated in Greek, a lot of times there are little clues that will tell you something about them. Just as you say the word or you read the word or you sort of dwell in the word, and sometimes you'll see something in these Greek words, and you know the word that I see in the middle of this is the word timpani, which you know is like those big old, gargantuan drum sets. That's a timpani. Or some of you know, if you know the physiology of the ear, what's the fancy word for your eardrum? It's called the tympanic membrane. What it's referring to is the, the actual process of a drum being made. And the, the history of that word, torture, comes from the idea of taking a skin and stretching it over a drum to the point that it is almost there to be broken. And yet that's when the resonance occurs. And that's like life. Because in the walk of faith, you will be stretched to the point where you will almost break. I just want to say something to you. I just want you to know that God is very near to you right now. He's very near to you right now. God is very near to you. Verse 39. These, these of the past were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what has been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us they would be made perfect. Now, what's he saying? God doesn't keep his promises? No, he's saying that, that let's look at that text just one more time, but he's saying that, uh, that these all were commended for what they had done, but they didn't receive what in a macro sense had been promised. What was the macro promise? That a Messiah would come who would clear this whole thing up and make it right. And, and they were living in anticipation but never saw it. Now, we... Looking in reverse, see what has happened, and it says God had planned something better for us, meaning we got to see Jesus. We get to live in, in the wake of Jesus. He had planned something better for us, so only together with us would they, back then, be made perfect. That word perfect means it was completed then. The picture now has come full circle, and it all starts to make sense. I have a new best friend. Um, contacted me in May. He became my best friend over the telephone. Um, 
I've been speaking for the better part of this last year at a church over near Milwaukee at Delafield, and a pretty sizable church. And, you know, I get up there, I do my thing, and, you know, I don't get to know a lot of people. I know several people over time. I got to know people. But there's been a lot of people just kind of sit there and, you know, don't really know me. And uh, this guy calls me out of the blue in May, and he knows what I do for a living. See, I work in seeing churches started all around the country and around the world. And um, he, uh, he called me and he says, I have just come into an enormous amount of money. And he says, it's just unbelievable how much money I've got. And he says, I want to put it into, uh, a bunch of it into seeing churches started. I said, well, you're my new best friend. <laughs> and he had heard me speak, but we had never met. And uh, so he, we got together a couple weeks later. And I sat down and I said, how is it that you have just decided to be so generous? Because a lot of people have money, but they're not generous with it. He says, the reason is because of my dad. And he told a story about his dad, who uh, when he was three years old, his dad lost his hand as a mechanic, and nobody would hire him, so they lived really in squalor. And they just got by, and his dad was a one-armed mechanic, did his own business, because nobody would hire him, and he was able to patch the whole thing together and make the family work. But The funny thing is, my friend here was telling me that when his dad would ever get extra money, um, tips or whatever, benevolence from things, because he was a Christ follower, you know what he would do with the extra money? It wouldn't go to the family even to fix the bikes or this or that. He always gave it away to the work of the Lord. So now my new friend, he told me, and he looked across the table from me and he says, this was all set up. My dad was just setting me up. He was setting me up, and now I'm able to complete what he was all about. And he says, I could give more in a second than he could give over the course of his lifetime. He says, I'll be darned if I'm going to turn my back on what legacy he left for me. Which is a perfect transition now into chapter 12. In conclusion... One of the disservices that was done to us in the Middle Ages when the the people wrote down these numbers in the Bible, sometimes they arbitrarily, you know, to give us a a, a map to get to certain places in the Bible, they they write verses and chapters. The author, like the guy who wrote Hebrews, it's not like he said, honey, I'm just about to knock off chapter 11 and then I'll be in for lunch. All right? They were writing as God inspired them, and later on we put these numbers in. So chapter 12 to me, really the beginning is a continuation of what we've been teaching. So it's not like a whole different story. Okay, in fact, it begins with a therefore. Therefore, on the basis of this hall of faith I've been writing about, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, right? We just read this together. We just read this. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You think this was a picnic for Jesus? (laughs) He says, therefore, he talks about this great cloud of witnesses. What's he talking about, this great cloud of witnesses? There, there was a, a, 
there were numerous athletic events in those days. Some were the precursors of our present-day Olympics. One which was very popular was called the Corinthian Games. And uh, at some of these games, it was not be unusual for the emperor to be there, but then for the whole crowd to be there, and they would have these, these races. And um, they were different than like just a long-distance race. Um, they, they, were, they had sprints and they had long-distance races, but here the author is almost talking about a combination, like a long-distance, like a marathon, combined with a relay race. So if you've seen a relay picture, right, you know what that's about. You're passing the baton on to someone else who is then going to continue and finish the race. Okay, now, I'm a runner. Um, I, I, I run some long distance. I've never run a marathon. Anybody here ever run a marathon? You can show your hands proudly. All right. Um, people have asked me if I have interest in a marathon, and you know what? I'm 49 years old, and I've set, set a goal, but by the time I turn 50, that I'm going to watch a marathon. <laughs> but I am in a marathon of sorts, and so are you, Right. It's just that the author wants the picture to be complete, that it's not just a marathon for marathon's sake. It's a marathon that involves passing a baton to someone else. So looking at the text again, when it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, the idea is that we have a stand that is filling up. It is the largest stadium you could imagine. It's filled with millions and millions and millions and millions of people as you are running into that stadium who are cheering you on. And we read about some of them, but this stadium is full of people who want you to finish well. And they're surrounding. And if I got my theology right, they're looking at us right now. Here's what I thought of. Remember last spring, the Badgers were in the uh, basketball, men's basketball were in the uh, the uh, NCAA tournament, and their first round was down in, um, down in Chicago at the United Center, and I remember I kind of blew off the afternoon just like you did, and I watched that game. It was Friday afternoon. It was against uh, Texas A&M, and um, they should have kind of blown them out, okay? But their point guard, Cameron Taylor, remember who Cameron Taylor is? He's the guy who looks like who? Chris Rock, right? And... Um, <laughs> He is pumping these three-pointers at the first half of the game, and he is just, like, throwing bricks. He can't hit a thing. And I'm going crazy. And, and anybody who's, like, one of the wind is like, what's going on here? And, um, and I, I kind of was sur- surprised, though, that Bo Ryan never pulled him. And then in the second half, what happened? He was shooting three-pointers again, and he was lights out, hitting everything. He ended up being the high scorer of the game. So afterwards, they're interviewing him. And they're asking him about the game, and he's talking about it. And then they said, well, did you know that today, because the game was in Chicago, did you know that Michael Jordan was in the house? Cameron Taylor's eyes got as big as saucers. He was like, no way. And they said, yeah, Michael Jordan was in the house. And he says, oh, I would have played better. (laughs) (laughs) But see, that's what the author is wanting us to understand, is that we, when we remember who's in the house, we up our game, right? I mean, we're better if there's others in the house that are cheering us on. And I mean, historically, too, they're in the stadium cheering us on. 
And they're the ones that those of you who are being tempted to do something despicable are saying, stop it! Just stop! And those of you who are just tempted to coast, like, they're saying, no! No, run! Or those of you who just need to give something up, or, you know, they're, they're just cheering you on. If you remember who's in the house, you up your game. If you're a professional athlete and there's a Hall of Famer there, you're going to play better. If the guy who taught me to preach was here right now, this would be really good. (laughs) Isn't that true, though? You remember who's in the house, you up your game. And who's in your house? I mean, there are millions who don't know you, and there's piles who do, and they're just cheering you on to something incredible. You know, who's, who's in your house? You know, for some of you, here's a familiar face who's running the race. Remember this guy? used to pastor this church. Then the Lord took him home too early, in my opinion. But you know what? Out here we got something that we built in his memory, but in the memory of those good people of faith. Have you ever walked down there, this, uh, this little memorial garden that we've got? And you know what? There's a rock there. You nestle up close to it. Guess what the verse is? Guess what you see? It's in a different version, but it's this Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses, why do you take a little walk in the garden to remember your race isn't over and you need inspiration and you've got to remember there are people that are just cheering you on. If you remember who's in the house, you will up your game. That is so funny how we are wired that way. I mean, we need that. It's harder to have heroes, but boy, we need them. But we really need that. I was thinking about this a few weeks ago. We got a little flyer in our mailbox from a lady who was starting a house cleaning business, and she wanted to give estimates. We kind of looked at each other and said, well, you know, why not? You know, let's have her over. So we called her to come over. She's coming over. Guess what we're doing? Right, a dental appointment this last week, and the hygienist, you know, who always gives me this guilt trip. Oh, you've been flossing lately, and I go, and I'm thinking to myself, for about a week, <laughs> right? Because if you know who's in the house, you'll up your game. Remember this, Lori and I, we were pastoring um, years back, and our church uh, didn't have much money, but they uh, they blessed us with a trip down south in the spring, and they sent us to San Antonio, Texas. Never been there before. And, um, you know, I am really in favor of churches loving on pastors. Can I just tell you that? Just nothing for no extra charge, but love on your pastor. We've got a great pastor. Love on the pastoral staff. Okay. But they loved on us, and they sent us to San Antonio. We didn't know anything. But we go down there. We drag our golf clubs down. You know, we don't have much money. We got, but we're going to enjoy the river walk and the whole thing. And we decided we were going to go out golfing. So we went out golfing, and we got teamed up in a foursome with a couple of guys, which, if I were to guess, they were like... Uh, part of a chewing tobacco convention or something, you know. And man, they had foul mouths dropping F-bombs like crazy. They were using words as we were golfing that I had never heard before. Lori had heard them, and uh, (laughs) she'd say, I'll explain it to you later. Explain it later. But around the 12th hole or so, this guy says, so what do you do? And I said, uh, I told him what we did, and I'll tell you what, it was so fun. I mean, it's just because, you know, and, uh, and, and, and they're just sullen, and we're going along. It's, everything is changing. And I said to Lori, I said, I said listen, we play, we play this right. They're going to cover our cab fare. <laughs> and you know what? They did. 
they did. Oh, gee, that was beautiful. But it's like, you know who's in the house and you up your game. And this is what the author is telling us. There are millions of people cheering you on. And those of you who are so weary are saying, I can't go on another step there, saying, for crying out loud, yes, you can. And those of you who are so close to just blowing it and screwing it up, they're saying, stop it, you can pull back. It's not too late to start becoming the person you could have been. And they're just loading it up on us, millions and millions. And, and it's not even over, because if you look at that text again, what does it say? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured a bunch of garbage. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When you run into that stadium, you see the emperor was always the one at the top, right? And in some games, it was the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And you're running into that stadium, and the one who took more of a beating than anybody is just looking out at you. And as you're coming into the stadium, what's he doing? He's going, thumbs up. You can do it. You can make it. You're not going to quit. You're going to finish well. I had a guy, a friend of mine, he pastored, he, he was from Taiwan, and his, um, his uh, missionaries, the guys who led him to Christ, thought he had potential for future vocational ministry, and they wanted to send him to Bible college in uh, the States, and they were from Denver, so they let some people back in Denver know about this, and somehow got on a Christian radio station, and there was this Chinese kid who wanted to come and needed some money so they could pull it off. And you know what? The weirdest thing happened. Somebody told a family who couldn't speak English. They were Spanish-speaking. They were from Mexico. And they told this family about what had happened. And this family, you see, had, had immigrated to the U.S. And they had, this last year, had had a tragedy. The tragedy was that their daughter was killed in a car accident, and they won a huge settlement from it. Well, at least it was huger than anything they'd ever seen. And when they heard about this Chinese kid who wanted Bible training because they were Christ followers, you know what they did? They gave, they gave their settlement so he could go to college. And my friend Dan, and you walk this life of faith, and there are times you want to can the thing, all right? But, but this guy, Dan, he said, when I came to the States and I met this family and through English-Spanish translation was able to go and visit them and see the squalor that they lived in because they allowed themselves to live at this level that I may go on. He said, I knew I would never give up. Can I tell you something? There are people in the stands right now that are saying, I know you're beaten. I know you're broken. I know you're not everything that the person next to you thinks you are. I know that, but you are not going to give up. Remember who's in the house. You up your game. So I guess I'll just let you apply that. I mean, for some of you, what? What, what does that mean? You're going to start reading your Bible. You're going to pray. You're going to join a group. You're going to confess. You're going to, you're going to what? You're going to let go of some stuff. You're going to love again. You're going to whatever. whatever. You remember who's in the house. You love your game. I'll just give you one more. Another hero. His name is Hulbert. 1940s, he was a student in... Minnesota Bethel Seminary, starting to be a pastor. And there was a group of people in northeast Wisconsin who were asking, could you get a pastor because they want to start a church. So this guy, Hulbert, would go over back and forth every weekend, about 300 miles, to um, 
help start a little church in a home and then a little storefront. And it was getting wearying. There were like eight people in attendance was their, their biggest in the storefront. And one weekend he told God, he said, if you can't give me a changed life, he says, I'm just not going on. And that weekend they had their highest attendance. They had 11 people. And he said, that's it, I'm in. So after he graduated, he went back to this town. He and his wife, they started this church, and they grew it and grew it and grew it and grew it, even to the point where they put up a building. He himself was part of the crew that quarried stone to build their first building, and they made a really cool go at it in this community. Well, he was done, moved on, had another pastor came, moved on, had another pastor. This third pastor in the life of this church had a kid who had some friends down the street that were part of a family that didn't know Christ, okay? So this pastor of this church says to his kid, hey, take a Bible down to this family. I don't think they know Jesus. So the kid did. He brought it down the street and knocked on the door, and the mom and the two boys came to the door, and he handed this Bible through the screen door, and one of the kids took it, took it up to his room, put it on a shelf. He paged through it. It was a good news for modern man Bible. Some of you who remember that, they had stick man pictures of Jesus in there. <laughs> and this guy took this Bible and he put it on a shelf and he left it there for several years till he was a junior in high school. And in a lot of ways, he had the world by the tail because he was at the top of his class academically. He was a decent athlete. He was a leader of a lot of stuff, had a lot of stuff going for him. And yet his life was really miserable and he needed something different and life wasn't making sense. And one night, in, in, a, in an act of desperation, pulled that Bible off the shelf, wiped off the dust. He wiped off the dust. And uh, he began to read. And in the reading, he came to know Jesus. You know, this hero, this, this Hulbert guy starts this church and it redounds a couple of generations. Now this guy comes to know Jesus. So he's on fire for God. He goes off to college, starts some fellowship groups. Things are going pretty well. Everything's really pretty going pretty well. But he's coming up on a senior year of college and he's tired. He doesn't want to go on to graduate school and and maybe missionary life and there's this girlfriend thing, so he runs over to the farthest place he can, and six months into his stint, he's standing on the front porch of the mission director's home in Bunya Zaire, being gripped by the bony hands of this little white-haired old lady who looks up into his eyes and says words he's not forgotten. She said, young man, don't you ever give up, young man. Don't you ever give up. God will, God will reward you. Don't you ever give up. God, would you uh, touch us now as we come around this communion table? God, we need to be good finishers. And in our mind's eyes, God, we see relatives. <laughs> we, see, um, we see other inspirers of days gone by. We see... Uh, people who've meant something to us in days gone by and we see them cheering us on and we see you cheering us on and God we will not give up we will not give up God uh, meet us now at this table in Jesus name Amen